Well, hey, everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. And before I get to the talk today, I need to take a moment to affirm something that I said a couple of weeks ago that a few of you emailed me about. Um, as you may or may not recall, we were exploring the narrative from the life of Jesus that documents the day when a whole bunch of pigs drowned in the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember the story? And during that talk, I made the comment that I thought the whole drowning thing was fascinating because based on my extensive online studies of pigs, they can swim. Well, as it turns out, a few days after I delivered that talk, Sarah Ann and I joined a bunch of Keystone friends on a retreat at a cottage in the Bahamas. Yes, suffering for Jesus. And uh, during that time away, we got on a boat, went on to a different island where we met swimming pigs. Sarah Ann took this photo as proof. In fact, some industrious bohemian entrepreneur even built a bar on a beach so that tourists like us could watch pigs swim while enjoying overpriced frozen beverages. <laughs> Seriously, this is the picture of the bar's sign. It literally reads, eat, drink, and swim with the pigs. So apparently, if you're feeling it, you can actually swim with the pigs. We thought that was not wise. So, um, yeah, I say all that to say I was correct in my statement about pigs swimming. They really can, apparently, unless they're possessed. Okay, so there you go. That's all we're throwing it out there. Okay, so we're in the fifth week of a series called What is God Like? That, as many of you know, was inspired by a talk that I gave last fall of the same name. And in that talk, we explored a conversation that Jesus had with his first followers in which he told them something that honestly would have been mind-blowing. Uh, he said to them this, he said, if you really know me, you'll know my father as well. Speaking of God, he says, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. In other words, Jesus looked at his guys and said, the more you get to know me, the more you get to know him. If you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've heard me, you've heard him. And if you've watched me, you've watched him. And then I went on to note, and this is sort of the framework for this series, that, that that reality makes the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so incredibly invaluable. Because if you think about it, they actually can reveal to us what God is like. And so each week in this series, what we're doing is jumping into a story from the life of Jesus and then asking what it can tell us about what God is like. And in order to get us going today, what I want to do, and it's a little different today, I want to ask you a question. And the question goes like this. Have you ever met someone who has been hurt by religion? And I ran this by um, one of you at the gym this week, and they were like, you should ask, have you ever met someone that hasn't been hurt by <laughs> religion? But, but have you ever met someone who's been emotionally damaged by either religious people or religious leaders, or maybe you have had such an experience. And if so, then, then you know, if it's you or someone you love, you know that religious wounds are some of, well, they're the most complicated wounds to heal. They cut deep. They cause us to doubt our value. They can destroy our self-confidence. And I would argue, perhaps most sinisterly, they can actually keep us from building a relationship with God. And, and here's why. Um, when we're wounded by either a religious person or a religious organization, particularly one that we've grown to trust, it na it's natural to equate that person or organization's rejection of us with God's rejection 
of us. And, and when that happens, it's easy to come to believe that at least from God's perspective, we're damaged goods, not worthy of his time or his care or his love or his attention. I mean, I've served as a pastor now well over two decades, and I'm telling you, our community, this community, is filled with people who've been hurt by religion in all sorts of different ways. And, and so I say that to say, if you're here and you're visiting, and, and you're like, well, I've been hurt by religion. I'm actually surprised we have, we're talking about this in church. If that's you, then you should know that you're not alone in your experience. Like some of us would say we went through a nasty divorce and were told that we were no longer welcome in a church in which we were raised. Others of us um, conceived a child outside of marriage and felt rejected, maybe even not formally rejected, but we just had this weird sense when we walked into church that something had changed. Others of us in an honest moment would confess that we were abused in one way or another by a church leader or judged for something that we did by a well-intentioned but not necessarily relationally intelligent religious person ever met one of those? Yeah. Yeah, their heart's right and their approach is off. But whatever the specifics, you know, if you're here and you've been hurt by church, you need to know you're surrounded by a whole bunch of us who've been hurt by religion at some point in our lives. And uh, if you're anything like us, um, you know, after our hurt, we experienced a season in which we came to believe that God must not want anything to do with us after what we did or after what was done to us. And though we may have never articulated it out loud during that stretch of life, we secretly came to suspect some things about God. Maybe he was a bit temperamental and definitely judgmental, just like the religious individual or organization that wounded us. But see, here's the good news. Um, and this is true, again, for a whole bunch of us in this community. That's not where the journey of our faith ended because we eventually came to recognize something about what God is like that gave us both a profound sense of hope and the courage to try religion again. And this is, this is what we learned. It bothers God when religion hurts people. It it really does. And the reason that I can say that so confidently is because of an experience that Jesus had one day with his first followers that I'm telling you, they never forgot. I think it profoundly shaped their approach moving forward from that moment. Uh, but before I show you that text, I want to give you a bit of context again, because once again, this week, context is key to understanding what's going on in this narrative. And so I'll start with this. By the time of Jesus... The Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and I found this rendering online, it was absolutely massive, the center of the ancient city. But the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day was a place that God had long designated to be a location where heaven touched earth. It was the holiest possible place on earth. And by the time of Jesus, it had more or less been turned into a tourist trap by a group of corrupt religious leaders called the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees were descendants of Israel's ancient priests uh, who had been charged with maintaining proper worship in the temple. But see, in the decades leading up to the first century, well, they had been seduced by the materialistic priorities and practices of the Roman world. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's called Hellenism. So they were priests, but they were also Hellenists. And so in response to that seduction, they had decided to turn the temple into a profit center for themselves. 
And in fact, by the time of Jesus, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he's pretty much the only Jewish historian. So if you hear somebody say the Jewish historian, just think that's probably that guy because he wrote this big history of the Jews. But anyway, he noted that by the time of Jesus, the Sadducees had become some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in all of Israel. He wrote that they owned much of the land in and around Jerusalem. They lived in massive, massive homes within the city and even had winter homes in Jericho, which was a town located about 15 miles downhill from Jerusalem near the Jordan River where the weather was more temperate. And the Sadducees were known to drink the finest wines and eat the finest foods and even to participate in things like the Roman theater and to view Roman athletic competitions. And, and this practice in particular absolutely infuriated conservative religious Jews. They could not stand the Sadducees. And in order to fund their lavish lifestyle, the Sadducees had created an abusive system in which all of the income from people's offerings to God, as well as all of the proceeds from a ceremonial market they had set up in the temple courts, landed in their laps. Moreover, in addition to the inflated prices they charged for pre-approved sacrificial animals in the market, if you want to offer that to God, you have to buy it here. The Sadducees required the use of the local currency in the market. And so what this meant is that you kind of got ripped off twice, especially if you were a Jewish pilgrim from another country. So just imagine it with me, you know, you've always wanted to visit the temple in Jerusalem and you've told your kids about its glory and one day you make the trip. And as you come over the ridge of the Mount of Olives, the temple comes into view and it's beautiful and it's shining in the sunshine and it takes your breath away. But see, then as you enter the temple courts, you learn that in order to buy an animal at, again, an inflated price to offer to God to, to do what you came to do, you had to change your money and the people there would do that for you for, of course, a fee. Can you imagine how these religious Jews must have felt when they encountered this corruption firsthand? As I imagine it, they must have been stunned and confused and concerned and frustrated. I mean, they wanted to worship God faithfully. They were trying to follow the rules. But see, the religious leaders who were charged with maintaining proper temple worship had created a system that polluted their experience, and I would argue likely polluted their understanding of what God was like. Because I can just imagine a husband and wife, a couple walking away from the temple thinking, why in the world would God allow this? Said a bit differently, because of the behavior of these corrupt religious leaders, the, these people were in a very real sense being hurt by religion. And again, this was happening during Jesus' lifetime. And, and it was into that twisted reality that Jesus led his disciples a few days before his crucifixion. And an account of what happened when he did was recorded by an early Jesus follower named Mark. Mark tells us that in the midst of Passover, which would have been Israel's largest annual feast, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he says, and quickly made his way to the temple complex. And then he tells us this. This is so interesting. He says, he looked around at everything. And you just think about what he saw. I mean, Jesus was undoubtedly aware of the corruption in the markets, but it was almost like he had to see it one last time. So he looks around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. 
It's like Mark wanted his readers to know, because of what's coming next, that Jesus witnessed the corruption in the temple markets firsthand before spending the night with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in a town called Bethany, which is just a few miles east of Jerusalem. And I just kind of imagine what the conversation around the dinner table that, that night must have been like, especially based on what happened the next morning. Because shortly after they rose, Jesus and his disciples began to make the trip back towards not just Jerusalem, but the temple. And while they're on their way, Mark tells us something really strange that happened. Here's what he said. He said, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, heading back again to the temple, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Good enough. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. You're like, okay, that, that's, why would Mark tell us that? That's kind of weird. Like, so apparently Jesus skipped breakfast in order to get an early start. And so as they began to walk, he was hungry. He sees the fig tree, gets excited about a snack. But when he reached the fig tree, there weren't any figs on it because it wasn't fig season. There weren't supposed to be figs on it. Nothing strange. But then check out what Mark tells us next. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him saying it. Now, is it just me or is that a super odd thing to say to a tree, right? I mean, I, I imagine like Peter, James, and John looking at each other going, uh, we have to give him some extra time and space today. Seems a little off. And uh, tomorrow morning, when he's not looking, let's switch out his coffee for decaf, okay? I mean, a little fired up, right? And then Mark tells us this. He says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In other words, Jesus and his disciples entered the temple markets and completely trashed the joint. For some reason, when I was a kid, I always imagined there was like one table and Jesus kind of went over and just tipped it over, right? Not very dramatic. And then years ago, I was reading a book um, that talked about this moment. And the guy, it was called Rabbi Jesus, great book. And he basically said, listen, he said, if you're a disciple of a rabbi, you do what your rabbi did. That was how it worked. And so he says, in that day in the temple, it wasn't just Jesus who flipped over like one table. He and his whole entourage began a riot in the temple courts. In fact, in John's account of the events of this day, he actually recorded that Jesus made a whip and used it. Jesus, who came to show us what God is like, used a whip to confront religious corruption. I submit to you that Jesus got a bit hot that day in the temple. Would you agree? He was absolutely furious that a group of powerful religious leaders had corrupted the temple and were hurting people because, as it turned out, God was absolutely furious that a group of powerful religious people had corrupted his temple and were hurting people. Moreover, and I think this is key, Jesus' anger compelled him to act. Like he wasn't simply overwhelmed with emotion that day. He didn't just have a stern talk with his disciples, right? He channeled his emotion into redemptive action. And hold on to that. We're going to return to it in a few minutes. Anyway, as Mark continued his account, he actually recorded what Jesus said to the Sadducees that day who apparently had come to observe the chaos. 
Mark tells us that Jesus looked them in the eye to ask them, or maybe better confront them by asking, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And to be sure, Jesus' rebuke here seems a bit harsh to us. He's saying to the Pharisees, you know, you, you basically are robbing people blind. But you should know that this would have been absolutely infuriating to the Sadducees at a level that we don't understand. And here's why I say that. With, with his question, Jesus leveraged a popular first century rabbinic teaching technique called a remez. And, and basically what a remez does is it allowed the rabbi to communicate something provocative to their audience without saying it directly. It was like a rabbi ninja move, if you will, right? And so in this moment, Jesus quotes from two different Old Testament prophets whose writings the Sadducees would have had memorized. And that's what makes it so powerful. Jesus knew that they knew what came after the verses he quoted, and they knew that what came after was actually what he was trying to say to them. And so now hopefully I've aroused your curiosity. Let me show you what comes immediately after the verse Jesus quoted from the Old Testament prophets about the temple being a house of prayer for all the nations. It's a quotation from the writings of a prophet who lived 700 years before the time of Jesus. His name was Isaiah. And Isaiah delivered the following message from God to a group of, wait for it, corrupt religious leaders. Here's what God said to them back then. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way and each seeks his own gain. In other words, Jesus, by quoting from the writings of Isaiah, he basically calls out the Sadducees and says to them, you're selfish, you're corrupt, you're dogs with unsatiable appetites whose actions have disqualified you from leading Israel in the worship of God. I'm sure they didn't mind that he said that to them. It's no big deal, right? Yeah, no. No, those were fighting words. <laughs> And as harsh a critique as that was, Jesus was actually just getting started because the second passage that he referenced, the one in which he accused them of making the temple into a den of robbers, also preceded an absolutely damning indictment of corrupt religious leaders who in ancient times had gone off the rails. So this quote uh, was taken from the writings of a prophet named Jeremiah who lived around 600 years before the time of Jesus. But Jeremiah recorded this message to God to a group of religious leaders, he told them, go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And I'm telling you, the Sadducees, they couldn't have missed Jesus' point that day. They knew their history. They knew that at Shiloh, God had allowed the tabernacle, and here's a picture of a model that you can visit in Israel. It was sort of a portable precursor to the temple. But at Shiloh, God had allowed the tabernacle to be completely destroyed because of the corruption of Israel's religious leaders at that time. So it's almost like in this moment, Jesus looks at the Sadducees and says, what happened then is about to happen again. You 
and your entire corrupt temple complex are going down. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that in first century Jerusalem, with a religious corrupt leadership that was backed by the Roman Empire, those were dangerous words. In fact, I would argue those were the kind of words that could get you crucified. And in case uh, you don't believe me, check out what happened next because Mark wrote, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. In other words, the Sadducees saw Jesus as a threat to their entire way of life because he was. And so they started to explore their options for getting rid of him once and for all. In, in fact, and this isn't surprising, scholars suggest that the riot in the temple market that day was the crime that ultimately led to Jesus' death. From the perspective of the Sadducees, Jesus was dangerous. He was bold, he was fearless, and he was getting popular because people who were being hurt by religion were drawn to him in droves. So now just as a fun PS to the biblical narrative, I want you to see how Mark concluded this passage. Like in the next verse, Mark tells us this. When evening came, they, Jesus and the disciples, went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree. Remember the fig tree? The cursed fig tree? They saw the, I don't know why it's two syllables all of a sudden. It's cursed, cursed. Anyway, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Isn't that interesting? Like these two fig tree scenes bookend Jesus' dramatic intervention in the temple operations, which of course raises the question of why. And uh, as you might suspect, there is a good reason why. Throughout the Old Testament, fig trees were leveraged by the authors symbolically to represent the religious leaders of Israel. And so when Jesus cursed the fig tree, he symbolically cursed the Sadducees by basically saying to them, your time in power is coming to an end. In fact... From Jesus' perspective, they didn't know this, he did. The time of the entire Old Covenant with its temple complex and labyrinth of religious rules and regulations was coming to an end. Jesus was about to usher in new rules to govern the relationship between people and God. And under those new rules, and the significance of this is hard for us to even imagine, the Jewish temple was no longer necessary. Like no longer did blood need to flow from the altar in the temple in order to pay for the sins of the people? Jesus' blood would accomplish once and for all what the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and doves never could. And by the way, uh, this new covenant begins the moment Jesus dies on the cross and a few decades later in 70 AD, Rome came and leveled Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. Okay, so now at this point, it would be more than fair to ask what all of this has to do with you and me and how we are to think about God. And I spent a lot of time wrestling that down this week, and I have a suggestion, and I want to begin um, by sharing our big idea for today, and this will not surprise you at this point, but uh, that basically it bothers God when religion hurts people. It bothers him 
a lot. And I would argue it bothers him a lot for a very good reason. It bothers him because he loves people. In fact, he loves everyone that he made in his image, which is to say, everyone. He loves every imperfect person and broken person and sinful person and even stuffy religious person. And he desires that religious organizations that are established with the mission of helping people know him, well, he wants these organizations to properly reflect his heart. And when they don't, they hurt people. I'm convinced that's why Jesus did what he did that day in the temple markets. He wanted his disciples, who were the ones who would launch his church, to understand that organizations that carried his name needed to reflect his passions and his priorities. And when they didn't, God was not pleased because people got hurt. To which we would all say, yeah, yeah, we know. Not that these organizations are ever going to be perfect, but as much as possible to reflect the passion and priorities of God. And and, um, you may not realize this, especially if you're new around here, but um, that understanding has been right at the heart of this church since the very beginning, almost 30 years ago. Yes, we are about to turn 30, friends. I know. We made it. (laughs) Yeah, right. 30 years ago, a group of friends, including my own co-leader, Randy Wasink, came together to recognize that though Grand Rapids did not need another church, (laughs) right, it desperately needed a different kind of church, a church for people who had been hurt by religion or organizations and who had subsequently spent years secretly wondering what God thought about them after what they had done or what had been done to them. So they wanted to create a church for people like that, a church for people with questions about God and doubts about God and concerns about God, and a church for committed Jesus followers who wanted to reflect God's grace as demonstrated by Jesus' death on the cross to their friends and neighbors who were far from him. And though they may not have thought about it in those terms back then, our founding fathers were upset that so many people that they loved had given up on a relationship with God because of the behavior of religious people. And it bothered them enough to do something about it, something that in hindsight probably shouldn't have worked. (laughs) But it did. It did. And though we're far from perfect, and you know, like, yep, I know, right? Yeah, we're far from perfect around here. We continue to seek to be a community where anyone can come And learn about a God who wants them to know him as their heavenly father. A God who loves everybody and who always welcomes his wayward children home with open arms and an invitation to relationship. My my family um, has been a part of this community for over 10 years now. And I'm telling you, I can't begin to tell you the number of times I've been out for coffee with people. And like, you see me in coffee. That's not the surprising part. But, but how many people over the years have said some version of, I never knew how good church could be because I guess I never really understood how much God loves me. And he loves me just as I am. And whenever someone says that to me, I always say the same thing in response. I always say, yeah, it's actually better than that. He loves you just as you are. And he loves you enough to teach you a better way to live by following Jesus. He loves you like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. He wants to show you a new way and a better way to live in this world. And that, my friends, is why we do what we do around here. In a very real sense, 
We're on a mission from God to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to our friends and our family and our world to help people find and follow Jesus. And three decades after this wonderful, messy, beautiful experiment called Keystone, we're just getting started. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but our city keeps growing. And as our city keeps growing and more and more people come to West Michigan, more and more people come into our orbit who need to learn about the God who created them and who loves them more than they can possibly imagine. And so I just, um, one more thing before I let you go. I was working on this talk and this idea kept popping up inside of me that I just want to encourage each of us to begin to pray for someone in our life who's written off church, God, religion, and the whole thing because of something that happened to them. And I just ask you to pray simple prayers. If you're not a prayer, it doesn't, there's no formula. Just pray that God would provide you with a natural, unawkward, it's not even a word, you know what I mean, unawkward opportunity to invite them to join you for a weekend service here. And maybe have lunch with them after and just listen to their story. And pray that through that experience, they might begin to know the God who created them. I mean, that's why we're here. And I invite you into that mission, maybe in a new way. And so we'll pick it up there next week. Um, but for now, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And uh, hey, if you're here and you're like, wow, I, I really need to talk to somebody. Uh, we've got some friends that'll be under the screen to the left after the service. We'd love to just meet with you and, and pray with you. Uh, but just know that um, we are honored that you're here um, and that God loves you. And so let, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the beauty of your son who was not afraid to say hard things and to confront things that needed to change. And thank you for the vision that, that launched this place. Uh, and thank you for your blessing and your hand on us all these years. I pray that we as individuals and as a community would continue to present the beauty of your son as best as possible to our world. And as we do, I pray that we would sense um, your love through us. But for today, we thank you and we bless you and we love you in the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.